thought that drink of water would help me after singing that song to give me a little bit of my voice back, but it requires all of us to sing a song like that. And that sign, or that line, I'll have a sign that's mentioned in my sermon this morning. It's on my brain. That line, oh to grace, how great a debtor, are all those who gather to sing Jesus saves. And that's the truth. This morning we're looking at a, a, a topical series, but one that always is rooted. When we say topical, it doesn't mean fluffy. It doesn't mean the stuff we make up, but it's stuff that we're looking at that is the stuff of life, God's word. And a few weeks ago, four, Pastor Sam started a new series called Simply Amazing. Uh, for the past two weeks, you know, last week, Pastor Al preached a wonderful message on the book of James. Some of you may have thought we were starting a series in James. One person did, and I had to help him understand, no, actually, Pastor Sam is coming back, and he's going to have a time this coming week to preach. We're looking forward to it. And then it ends up being me. So one of the benefits that I have in working with Pastor Sam is that he shares with me what he's planning to preach. And some of us on staff have um, a good opportunity then to develop some things in concert with that. I'm thankful for the bulletin inserts that come out every week in your bulletin. That's a study that accompanies uh, the work that goes into Pastor Sam's sermon, and it's an opportunity for you to take it away and to recap, but also to dig deeper, and I hope you'll do that today. Since I had worked on that with him, um, it gave me the opportunity to pick up where he left off with the story of Noah. He was planning to come back and do part two of that very powerful sermon he preached uh, three weeks ago, um, right before Patrick Hobbs Aquaman preached here, if you recall that <laughs> message as well. Uh, but it's been so long ago, I hope that you can come back to the feast at the table that is God's grace this morning and be fed again out of this story in Genesis about Noah. And if you're not there already, turn to Genesis 8. We'll be looking at Genesis 8 and 9 this morning with the title of this sermon being All of Grace. All of Grace. Over 100 years ago, and then some now, Charles Spurgeon wrote a little book called All of Grace. And if you've ever read it, you know that it's, a, it's an account and an outline, basically, of how someone can be saved. And the main burden that Charles Spurgeon had in writing that little book was that people who would read it would never make the mistake that salvation is something that we do, but it is only by God's grace freely given in Christ that any can be saved. And that is the good news. Because in Christ, by God's grace, freely given, you can be saved. But Charles Spurgeon wrote uh, an introduction to that story, about a, uh, that, that book, about a story that he heard about a minister in England back in his time period who was out in the country and visiting um, a woman in his congregation that he knew was struggling financially. Uh, the minister was able to take some money with him, and he went to the lady's home around noon, knocked on her door, but she never came to the door. And he knocked again, assuming that maybe she was just somewhere where she was not disposed to come so quickly, but in knocking again, she still did not come. And finally, the minister, money in hand, pocketed the money and went back to the church. And later on that day, the woman was at the church. And when he saw her, he said, oh, sister, I came to your house earlier today in hopes to meet with you. She said, oh, minister, that was you? And he said, yes, 
Uh, she said, well, what time was that? He said, it was around noon. And the woman said, oh, please forgive me, but I thought you were the landlord coming to collect the rent. <laughs> and I was hiding, not wanting to come and face that. What she didn't realize was that the minister was there not to get something from her, but to give something to her. Not to take, but to supply. And I'm afraid that some people come to church thinking that when you hear the pastor preach and when he stands up to deliver God's word to you, that it's going to be something that you have to do. And that once you hear it, it's going to be a heavy burden on you. And that it's kind of a drudgery to hear the pastor preach, but you'll put up with it. But I, like Spurgeon, would say, it's not my desire to come here calling for the rent. It's my desire to come here not to ask you of anything, but to tell you, to preach to you that salvation is all of grace. There's nothing for you to do, but God has supplied and provided everything. And so as a beggar coming to you, my fellow beggars, whether you realize you, you be a beggar or not, come to the feast that God has laid before us this morning, the feast of his grace, and sup richly, feast abundantly. I'm trying to speak like Spurgeon here to get the point across. <laughs> God, in the story of Noah, does something that he does everywhere in the Bible, if we would have but a heart to see it that way. He demonstrates through the story of Noah that salvation is all of grace. And our, our theme this morning is just that. And I want to show you the three simple points that we'll walk through. The theme, God demonstrates that salvation is all of grace. And everywhere he does so, it's as if he is spreading a table in front of you and bidding you to come. It's in the language of Isaiah 55. Come, you who have no money, come and buy. Buy rich food and eat. You say, how can we do that without money? That's grace. God prepares the table, he pursues you, and he bids you to come. And to consider that salvation for you is the same as salvation for Noah, it's all of grace. I hope that I get that point across. All right, the three points this morning. If God is going to give his grace to us, supply richly all that we need, then the things we see throughout scripture are the things that God always provides. By his grace, he provides the Savior, he provides the sacrifice, and he provides the sign. Until he returns, there's always a sign particularly through the covenant that he gives. And we'll look at the covenant that God made with Noah as a part of our sermon today. But let me begin with that first point. God, or God through his grace, provides the Savior. Now, Genesis chapter 6 through 9 is one long story in the book of Genesis about one man, Noah. We see back in Genesis 6 that, that Noah's section begins like many of the sections in Genesis do. It starts off by saying, these are the generations of Noah. And then you get the account of Noah's life and the flood that came and wiped out all of human existence except for Noah, his wife, their three sons and their sons' wives, and a host, a menagerie, if you will, a zoo on a boat called the Ark. Now... When I say that grace provides the Savior, on the one hand, the Savior that God provided in the time of Noah was Noah. And Noah serves us, as many Old Testament characters do, as a type 
of the greater Savior, Jesus, who would come. God was zealous, eager, that he would get out the news of his son to come. And he was also eager that we would see the pattern that needed to develop so that anyone who would come to him by faith could understand what salvation is all about and that it's all of grace. Here's what we know about the earth in the time of Noah. Back then, as Pastor Sam told us, the earth was corrupt. And as Genesis 6 tells us, the intention, the very intention of every man's thought, all his imaginings, all of his desires were only, this is the sum total of it, evil continually. And that time period, there was no place, no institution, whether that be the kingdoms of the earth at the time, the marriages, the families, the workplace, the worship. You couldn't go anywhere, but it was only evil continually. And Pastor Sam shared with us the seller of this evil. I share with him the view that he shared, where it says in Genesis 6 that the sons of God came to the daughters of men. I do believe that that is a demonic presence in the pre-flood world that cohabited with women to produce an evil offspring that Sam said were the Nephilim, as the Bible describes it, or titans that roamed around in that time period. Why do I think that was happening? Because one of the main things that's clear in Genesis chapter 3 is that God promised someday in response to the human sin, he would send a seed of the woman who would someday come to crush the head of the serpent. You may remember that from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And when we understand what the sons of God were all about in the rest of history, in history and in the scriptures, one of the things that seems to emerge is a desire on the part of the snake to create his own seed and his own line, which could perhaps, in the view of some, crush out the line of the promised seed to come through the woman. Now, an intriguing thing that also helps me to think that this is true is what Lamech, Noah's dad, named him. Right into the threshold of all of this wickedness, we read in Genesis chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, the first mention of Noah. When Lamech had lived 182 years, now dudes lived a long time back then, okay? He fathered a son, and Lamech called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He wasn't talking about Noah creating machines that would help them to work harder with less work. He's referring to the curse that God placed on men and women in the Garden of Eden. And by the name that he gave Noah, Noah sounds very much like the Hebrew word for rest. He was hoping that this one that God had provided through his line, the line of the original couple, now through Seth, would ultimately reveal the Savior, the promised one, who would bring the people rest from the curse. Now, in a way, this, this happened, but not in the way that it someday would. As you continue reading through Genesis, four times God mentions the track record of Noah. 
And one of the things about a savior that you need to have is a perfect track record. So let's look at Noah's track record very quickly. The four times that God mentions Noah's perfect track record as the savior for his generation are these, Genesis 6.22. In Genesis 6.22, if you look down through that in the text, it says very simply, Noah did this, he did all that God had commanded him. Now this refers to the building of the ark, the, uh, the gathering of all the animals, uh, covering the ark with all that pitch, getting it ready for the floodwaters. He did all of that. Genesis 7, 5, when it came to gathering more of those animals. And Genesis 7, 8 and 9, all of those animals. It says of Noah again, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Genesis 7, 8 and 9, it says, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And finally, 7, 16, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. The point here in stacking up all those in the account of the flood is to recognize something about Noah and his character. His track record up to this point is stellar. If you're looking for a man who's right with God, go and hang out with Noah. And one of the burdens of this time period in the pre-flood world was that people would recognize the righteousness of God. In the New Testament, it tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was busy about those hundred years building the ark and telling people about Elohim, the true God, who was superior and transcended all of the pantheon of gods that the people worshipped. And yet, no one except his family went with him into the ark. What we recognize is when we're looking for a savior, we need someone with a perfect track record. It will not do to find somebody who's just as fallen and fleshly as us. The savior that we're looking for is someone who did no wrong. And we can bank our lives on the fact that Jesus Christ is that one. Amen. I tell you that Noah is a pattern, and he's a pattern for the one to come. The track record of Jesus, superior to that of Noah. There's another thing about a Savior that we need to bear in mind. The Savior has a representative role. A representative role. Look at Genesis chapter 7, verse 23. It says there about, Noah, about God in the first place. God, he, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. And then get this, only Noah was left. Now why highlight Noah? It should have said only Noah and his family were left. But Moses, who's writing this, places a burden on that man. Only Noah was left. And then it says, and every, pardon me, and those who were left with him in the ark. Now, Noah has a job to do as the savior of his generation and of his family. He is the representative before God of all those who have come. And in a very real sense, the reason why the people on the ark were saved and the people on the, the, the animals on the ark were saved was because of the righteousness of Noah. Now, I want to remind you, friends, the reason Noah was righteous was not because he had a lot of good works to his credit, but as a fellow human, 
The reason that he had righteousness at all was, was because God and his great grace looked on Noah, not because of what he had done, but simply because he loved him and showed him grace. That's why. And that's why he could have the representative role that he did. What tells me even more about this is Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Look at that with me. By this point, the flood waters have been rising for 150 days. They have prevailed. And that means there's no end in sight for the flood. It seems like it won't stop. There's no record of God speaking and communing with Noah on the ark. But outside, as the ark continues to rise with the waters pushing it up and the waters from the sky pelt down, Noah is there with his wife and his sons and their wives and the stinky animals and all those bugs in the dark waiting for what God will do. 150 days. And right at the center of the whole story of Noah and his ark, It hinges on this one phrase in verse 1, but God remembered Noah. Now, I need reminders all the time, friends. I have them pop up on my iPhone, and I obviously am a very forgetful person because they keep popping up. I swipe them to do later, right, a lot of times because it's not a convenient time to be reminded of something. I'm doing something else. Or it's like when I'm cooking. I'm not the, the best cook in my house, but I enjoy doing a meal every once in a while. So imagine if I'm boiling noodles, if I'm preparing the sauce, if I'm baking some kind of bread, and if I'm chopping up the salad stuff to put it in the bowl, all of a sudden I hear whoosh, and I look over to see water pouring out on the burner. And I rush over to turn off, I forgot about the noodles, right? God is not in the midst of disciplining and destroying the world, and all of a sudden, Noah, I forgot about him on that boat. (laughs) That's not what he's doing. The remembering of God is different than the remembering of men. God knew where Noah was and was with him the whole time. And he brought to a point the the destruction of the entire world. But in the midst of it, he remained faithful to his covenant to Noah. Prior to getting on that ark, God had said to Noah, I establish my covenant with you and with all who are with you. That meant God would never forget that. You know, it took 150 days for the waters to go down. Imagine spending really a year on that ark. It would be an amazing stretch of time, wondering what's God going to do, but then experiencing and growing in patience. Noah does all that, even in the birds that he releases, patiently testing the new world that God is delivering them into. And ultimately, this representative does something that is so important. He makes a sacrifice. And this is what a savior does. A savior makes a sacrifice. We read in Genesis 8, 20 and 21, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. They finally landed on Mount Ararat and God calls them out of the ark. And what does Noah do? And he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Brothers and sisters, that's a lot of animals. And by this point, the food chain is rather dwindled. All you've got, meat-wise, is there on the boat with you. But Noah takes some 
of every type of clean animal that they brought. He kills them, he spreads them out before God, and he burns them completely up. This isn't a barbecue. This is an incineration of every animal carcass there is. Why? Because he was their representative. He stood between them and God. And when God saw that, you know what? He recognized and he knew what he always knew, that the wickedness of people would just follow them on the ark into the new world. And he looks again and he says, if you look with me, I will never again, verse 21, curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, God knew this, and ultimately, the Savior that Noah was to his generation, he would fail. If you read to the end of Genesis 9, you read that Noah gets drunk. And some people say that Noah didn't recognize that grapes would ferment in this new world that God had delivered them to. I say, respectfully, that's baloney. I think Noah knew what grapes would do when they were fermented and the man got drunk and he was irresponsible. It could have been a pattern. It could have been a one-time thing. But this is what I know about all human, merely human saviors. They will fail you. And they, at best, can only be a sign pointing you to the real savior. And that's Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus Christ in his track record, and in his ability to represent the people, and in the sacrifice that he made, never would fail the people of God. And although we all, did you realize this? We all, across this room, are descendants of Noah and his family. And I believe that as sure as the Bible is true. So they really got busy after they got off the ark, obviously, as you look around. <laughs> Obeying God's command, as we will soon see, but one thing that's really been evident ever since that time is that anyone who came from that family came with the same set of troubles that they took with them on the ark, fallen, sinful, full of pride, ready to reject God and deny him to follow our own selfish will. We need a savior. We also need a sacrifice. And grace, and God in his grace provides that. So let's look deeper at the sacrifice. In chapter 9, God speaks. And the language here is not what we're used to. If you're looking for a gripping novel that gives you tons of detail, it's not written that way. But Noah has an intention when he is remembering this, and Moses had an intention when he was writing this. It's that we slow down and we recognize what was happening as Noah and his family stepped off the ark into this newly formed world through the flood. And as the animals come off with them and God speaks. Listen to the words of God in verses one to seven. It's a unit because of how it begins and how it ends. Be fruitful and multiply be fruitful and multiply. So let's read it. God blessed Noah, verse 1 of chapter 9, and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. 
Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. When we read this, it's full of images of animals and blood. And when you think about sacrifices, those are the things you need in order to make a sacrifice. Back in Genesis 7, God had told Noah, right before they loaded up the ark, Noah, go and find seven pairs of clean animals. This would become the foundation for the offering system that would someday take place in the nation of Israel as God instituted those sacrifices. But it's evident that even now, God had made his will known that in order for salvation to be given, a sacrifice of blood must be offered. And God must be propitiated. His wrath must be soothed so that he will not continue to pour out that wrath on sinful humanity. Now, it doesn't explicitly say anything about sacrifices here, but we learn an important principle of blood. Now, let me walk through what I think is happening here. God is doing a couple of things. In the first place, he's caused all the animals to be afraid of Noah and his family. Um, all, I mean, the, the type of animals here listed are the predatory ones, the carnivorous birds. And you don't necessarily have cows listed here. You know, it's, it's interesting. Cows don't necessarily seem to be afraid of people. But a lion is going to think twice about going into a whole crowd of people. Some might be a little crazy and jump on you. But what was happening here? God was restraining the potential of the replenishing animal population to overwhelm and wipe out the human race. By striking fear into the heart of those predators, God was ensuring that there would be enough time for the humans to do what they were called to do and for the animals to do what they were called to do. Because you can believe it, animals don't waste time swarming and replenishing. So another thing that happened, God gave people the permission to obviously hunt and to kill those animals and to enjoy them. But to do so the way that God prescribed. They were not to do it the way that animals did or the way that some before the, the flood had done, capturing the animal, twisting its neck like a pagan would do, and drinking the blood as well as eating the meat. I'm not trying to gross any of you out. I had a lady one time tell me in a previous church that she could not sing the song there is a fountain filled with blood without fainting. And so I'm trying to be careful, but we have, in talking about the sacrifice, you have to talk about blood. So God does another thing. He says, if any animal kills a human, I will require a reckoning of that animal's life. But more, if any of you take another life, I will require a reckoning of your life. Because he has that verse, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
This is the foundation for civilized culture in terms of what a government can do to ensure that murder does not run in wild like it did in the pre-flood world. Murder before the flood was a game, killing whoever you wanted, whenever you wanted to. And for the masses of people who weren't doing that, murder was boring. Yesterday's subject, let's talk about something even more wicked. God was intent that this new beginning would have the foundation of not making murder one of their central pillars of society. Instead, whoever took the life of another, God would require that person's life. And I do believe that this is still the foundation that God intends for us to have in any civilized society as a means of his common grace. Now, the Bible talks about God's grace in many ways. This is one of the categories of common grace. That means whether you're a a Christian or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this is God being gracious to protect you. But the theological reason for all of this, the God reason, is that God knew that from this group of people, his Messiah would come. And he would never allow the murder of another human being to stop the arrival of his own son. And so he curbed the human tendency. He regulated the human evil to stop that from ever occurring. I appreciate that God held to this principle, and how could he not? Because what we learn later on in Leviticus chapter 17 is a foundation for understanding the blood and the sacrificial system. I'll read that to you now. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For this is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The point of these verses is blood belongs to God. You might say, well, it's my blood. You know, I donate it. And the plasma too. Well, it belongs to God. And in doing those things, you're helping others. And I'm not saying you should not do that. Nor am I saying a transfusion would be wrong. But in the shedding of blood, in pouring it out, in killing another person, you're, you're taking away the life of that person. There's life in the blood. And that's why it is so precious. And God said, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. All those animals that were preserved on the ark, they were for some good hunting and some good eating. And they were also to make appeal for our souls, for the very atonement of our souls, that we would be forgiven and that our status before God, we would show him we are repentant and God, we are grateful. Forgive us again. God's demand for justice, ultimately, friends, through this sacrificial system is good. 
Because you know what God did? Ultimately, he subjected his own son to the death penalty. He, Jesus, was crucified on that Roman cross in that public style of execution, ultimately at the hands of God. God requires a life for a life that was taken. And what was taken away from God when Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden and has been our legacy ever since, God purposed that he would pay that debt himself. All grace. Every last drop. For those who would come and receive it by faith that your debt could only be paid by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's why Hebrews 9 says what it says, verses 24 to 26. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. No earthly altar could ever suffice, which are copies of the true things. But Jesus went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, long before the flood ever took place. But, but as it is, Hebrews tells us, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is good news. This is grace. Salvation may cost you nothing, but it cost Jesus everything. We must remember that. And he gives it, not begrudgingly, not with regret, but with joy, so that you could be free from your sins today. Even now, if you have sinned this very week, even naming the name of Jesus, that you could repent you could turn back to him, not having lost anything, but remember where your sacrifice was made. With basically five words, you could come back to him. I'll say them for you now. I repent. I am grateful. I repent. And I am grateful. I repent of my sin. Lord Jesus, it is, it is wrong and you died for it. And I am grateful that you did. I have no hope but you. You are the sacrifice. You know, Charles Spurgeon in that book, All of Grace, said this, it is a blessing for us that as sin lives and the flesh lives and the devil lives, so Jesus lives. It is also a blessing that whatever strength these may have to ruin us, Jesus has still greater power to save us. Amen indeed. Well, the last point is this. God provides the sign. Um, this ultimately is something that will help us if we will view it correctly. But it has a lot of different interpretations nowadays. It's a rainbow. Let me show you one that I took a picture of over West Park. This was back on September 8th of last year. I was driving to church from my home. Uh, down Middlebrook Pike, taking pictures of it. That was before the laws changed. It was okay then. <laughs> and I got to church and I saw 
not one, but two rainbows stretched over the top of the church. And I went back in my mind thinking about what this means for us and the covenant of Noah that God made, calling us to remember why the rainbow is in the sky. So why is this rainbow the sign? Um, verses 13 to 15 of, Rome, of Genesis, Genesis, Romans, <laughs> 13 to 15 of Genesis 9, the word bow appears three times, and that's God's word for rainbow. It's interesting, it's also the word for a warrior's bow. So there's not a whole lot of interpretation that leads us to think that this is God hanging up his warrior's bow. Maybe. But the point here is that God stretched this beautiful display of light across the sky in order to remind us of something. I thought about rainbows in our culture today. If you have girls in your family, uh, like my wife and I do, or granddaughters, it seems like unicorns and rainbows are everywhere. You know, I got, our daughters have some unicorn rainbow stuff on their folders, on their pencils, something on their shirt. I don't know who ever put unicorns and rainbows together. Somehow they ended up in this weird union. Um, rainbows also appear as the symbol, the flag of a movement in our culture right now that elevates as the highest principle self-determining human pride. And friends, that's not what the rainbow originally stood for. But I'm not here to rail against it. I want to share, I have enough residual human pride in me that I need grace still from God. And the rainbow should remind us, wherever we see it, that God has withheld his judgment. And ultimately, what we can recognize is this. God's judgment for human sin has been delayed. I'll share that good news again. God's judgment on human sin has been delayed. It's not really the best news. I think it would be better to say God's judgment for human sin has been eradicated, done away with. But the rainbow at best tells us that his judgment for human sin has been delayed. You know, it's been a good long delay. It's been a few thousand years where rainbows have stretched across the sky and God has never again faithful as he always is to his promises of grace, flooded this world and destroyed it. And that's what the rainbow means. You know, the rainbow, this is the first time that it appears in the Bible. And Pastor Sam told us a few weeks ago, there's that law of first appearances or that rule of interpretation where something first appears in the Bible, it sets you up for how it appears later on to. And here's where the other places in the Bible you can find out about rainbows. Ezekiel 128. That's the throne room of God, and Ezekiel sees it. And around the throne of God is a rainbow. And that's right before God calls for limited and restrained judgment on his people Israel. The next time you see a rainbow is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. And there in the throne room of God again, the rainbow is still there. Right before the Lord Jesus, the conquering lion and the lamb, comes forward and alone has the right to take from the hand of God the scroll that when he unlatches the, the seals on the scroll 
will again unravel a more serious and yet limited judgment on the people of earth. And finally, in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, there's a mighty angel who comes down and stands with one foot on the land and one foot in the sea, who it says is very much like the Lord Jesus Christ. Some even say that this is Jesus. I'm saying it doesn't have to be. He's described as a mighty angel who I think at least in a very real sense has come in the presence, from the presence of the Lord Jesus. And the crown that he wears that stretches around his head is a rainbow as he calls for the destruction to take place of the world. Now, the rainbow is our symbol that God's judgment for human sin has been delayed. And praise God for that common grace. But this is how grace is. If you do not take hold of it, you will not escape the judgment to come. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 9. You may be some like this. They deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water, by the word of God. This is describing the very beginning, when God made the world. He set the firmament above, which contained water, and the water that was raging and out of control, the Holy Spirit pushed down as land was formed. All that water, still there, came rushing up at the time of the flood. And here's what we read further. And by means of these, that water above and water below, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, right now, today, are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. What once was water will someday be fire. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I repent. I am grateful. Would it be that today, those are words that you could say, human pride will not allow you, but cry out to God, God, by your grace, break my pride. Give me repentance. Give me gratitude so that God's judgment for you is no longer delayed, it is met. And in Jesus Christ, the only Savior, the only sacrifice, who holds the sign and releases the judgment of God, would not pour it out on you, but has taken it on himself. Would, my friends, today be the day that you repent and that you become grateful for the God of all grace.